0: I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is it. precisely what they think they are. Love hmm? it's where you find it, where you find it, hmm? where you find it, Love hmm? it's where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die.
1: Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. Today is episode 3 of season 1, featuring special guest Kaya Oaks on writing and composition. Today's episode was originally recorded on March 9th, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, publishers of my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give Us This Day, Daily Prayer for Today's Catholic, The Institute for Christian Socialism, Building a Movement of the Ecumenical Christian Left, Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics, Where Peter is, There is the Church, and... The Juan Diego Network, Catholic audio for Latinos. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. All listeners of Folk Phenomenology are eligible for a whole year subscription to Commonweal for only $9.95. You can find a link to that promotion in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find some of Kaya Oakes's writing uh, in Commonweal. She's a frequent author there. Uh, Her recent review of the book American Prophets, titled Is There a Religious Left, is a particularly good, I think, introduction to her authorship of several books and numerous essays and articles and commentaries and reviews. So please uh, take a look in the show notes to see and find some of that reading. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please consider sharing this episode. Subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe leave a review or a rating, or you can also drop a tip. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media, with dedicated accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. In last week's episode, in dialogue with Jeannie Gaffigan, we used her book, When Life Gives You Pears, as a lens of sorts, to really get into her autobiography, not only her story, but also her story of her family and her marriage, and that took us all the way to the universal themes of tragedy and comedy and suffering and the tragicomic. In this week's episode with Kaya Oakes, we enter the discussion through the lens of poesis. In Greek, the word poesis simply means to make And in this sense, that's what we mean, I think, when we say composition within the realm of writing, prose, and even poetry. Kaya opens this world up to us at a molecular level, entering into some granular details about how to write and how to edit, but also talking about the world of writing today, both within the academy and also outside of it in more public-facing and popular writing. But at the heart of the interview is the animating force of this fundamental relationship between the word and the world between language and speech that not only makes talk but speaks the world into existence this i think is truly the atomic core element of this very detailed discussion of writing We're ultimately entering into the craft, the poesis, not only of making books and articles and essays, but even of, perhaps, making the world itself by naming the world. This naming does invite a kind of poetic conceit. It can risk a kind of over-universalization. But Kaya wisely steers us away from that in this interview and brings us into the depth of difference to delight in the world without consuming it. Dilexit mundum. Thank you so much for being here with me, Kaya.
0: Thanks for asking me, Sam.
1: You are a poet in addition to being uh, a writer of various kinds and an award-winning poet it's something that i find um, frankly uh, fascinating about uh, your work as a writer you seem to basically work in every genre as far as i can tell is that fair
0: well i don't write fiction (laughs) okay and i don't write screenplays okay and i actually haven't written any poetry about 10 years but I will say that as an essayist and nonfiction writer I think that my background as a poet you'd be surprised to find out how many essayists started out as poets so Tana Hazy Coates Mm. Joan Didion, Baldwin Mm. you know many of the great essayists uh, started as poets and I think it's because that close attention to language is really um, something that the essay or nonfiction writing, uh, needs more of, and that elevation of language is important. So yeah, I've tried to write fiction, but I'm just God awful at it. So yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, in addition to all these things, just to kind of bring things in a bit more of an anecdotal, uh, closeness here. You're also a very uh, unsparing, I would say, editor. And I'm speaking here from personal experience. <laughs> uh, you know, I was lucky to to be able to have you uh, do an, 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 an early uh, editorial review of Folk Phenomenology, my 2015 book. And I recall, um, well, like, like it was yesterday, your... Uh, calling out the cliche in, in 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 not only my writing, but even you you said, yeah, philosophers and academics, you all think cliches are sort of effective ways of communicating, but they're actually not, right? <laughs> and also called out my uh, use of uh, repetitive adjectives, especially trios. Um, and I tell you what, um, i've I've written a little bit of poetry, and I've had the uh, ability to get some critiques from poets who you know fiercely attack your line breaks and stuff like that and that was the way that critique and that edit felt and it was so good and it was it's so rare uh because in philosophy most of the time peer reviewers they want you to think they're smart and philosophers think that if you critique form you're like not going after the right stuff you know um but um i thought maybe we could talk a little bit about actually like composition and in some sense this 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 interval between the poetic and the prosaic, uh, because I think it's I think it's important. I've seen it do work in my own writing, by your own critical eye in hand, and I'm sure you have like troves and troves of things to share about it. What, what do you think about that as a topic?
0: Yeah, sure, we can go for it. I think the I'm in the midst of a batch of essay grading with my undergrad students right now, and I've been thinking a lot about this question of like how do we give people feedback on their writing and how do they receive it? Do they receive it with grace and and openness or do they receive it with hostility? And in the academy, as you know, in in the upper echelons of the academy, so when you get into postgrads and writing for academic journals and publishing dissertations and stuff, the feedback gets more and more... um, tends to be so focused on ideas and Mm -hmm. less about how those ideas are being expressed. At the same time, we have this parallel stream where academics are increasingly wanting to, and for the sake of bringing attention to their disciplines and the humanities as we know, we have to do public scholarship because otherwise, students don't want to study philosophy or i was just the whole cornell west situation Mm. is fascinating to Mm -hmm. me that he was lured by harvard because of his public profile but then criticized for doing too much public scholarship and it's like it's cornell west well they already went through this
1: a few years ago when he left the first time right like they didn't learn their lesson
0: Right, I don't know if you saw, he just left again. Mm-hmm. So
1: Yeah, he's going to Union now, yeah.
0: Going back, right. So yeah, going back. So, yeah, so that's fascinating to me because he's such an example of somebody whose scholarship and writing is accessible to a broader public, is influential outside of the academy, is known outside of the academy, and yet has serious academic chops. And there are many, mm-hmm. many other people you and I both interact with or follow on social media, um, who would fall into these categories as well. Uh, and yet the reception to editing in academic writing is very hostile. A lot of the time when it comes to editing for style, which is what I think, um, That I'm style and voice are are such a huge part of getting these uh, more obtuse ideas across to people outside of the discipline. So a friend of mine, uh, who's a theologian, commented on this that he started to write for America or Commonweal and said, you know, had a PhD and had published a lot of academic articles. And he said, I've never had. Somebody pay that much attention to my actual writing? Yeah. But and it was because again, it's not about the writing; it's about other things.
1: And and I actually so, think you might be yeah. being too generous there. I mean, <laughs> I mean, seriously, right? So like, I, um, <laughs> I'm not. I, again, like, I, I'm, I'm basically trained in the academy, and and I was one of those. My college thought it was a good idea to give honors students exemptions from taking basic composition on the assumption that they had mastered all those things in high school. And I was not uh, someone who had done that, right? So I had never uh, taken any serious uh, courses in composition or in writing. And I found that I had to essentially remedially read manuals and Paris Review. Uh, because I thought the pros there looked like, you know, top shelf. And so I just, you know, monkey see, monkey do and, and, and read, you know, Strunk and White and, 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 and Fowler and all that kind of stuff and put my stuff together. But one of the things I found that in, in my field is one's writing, if it's aesthetically um, quality, one will actually be critiqued for that. So you will actually be told, well, oh, it's a very poetic writer, you know, a very good writer. And that actually means it's a put down (laughs) at the conference. What's that about? Have
0: you seen that before? It's about, I think it's a suspicion of cheap ideas. And what I mean by that is the sense that you're not a serious scholar if you're writing in this way that is only comprehensible to five people you know in a very narrow field and i do i think it is the suspicion of um yeah the suspicion of of taking our knowledge and giving it to people who don't deserve it or haven't earned it because they are not part of our little bubble world and i don't it's been a while since i was in vancouver but I seem to remember that the campus of UBC is sort of similar to Berkeley's, which is that we are porous within the city. There's no there's no walls around campus. The city is, you know, we're, it's like NYU or uh, other urban schools where we're really in the town. Sure, sure. And it feels so different from somewhere like the college where i used to teach which was out in the suburbs and completely isolated and the students were yeah, yeah, yeah. just living in this little bubble and how many of colleges are like that, and in COVID we're learning, you know, how much that model is a failure anyway. Mm -hmm. But it is that representative of the citadel of knowledge being, you know, only for the few and not the many, and then when you begin to write in ways that are recognizable as, populist for lack of a better Uh word that people become suspicious that you're not a serious scholar and that's what people have often told me grad students and yeah I'd love to write you know oh my research is on this really fascinating super relevant topic and I'd love to write about it and pitch it to the New York Times or whatever but I'm afraid I won't be taken seriously right and I'm like it's the New York Times yeah
1: oh yeah (laughs) yeah
0: so, I don't know if that makes sense in answer to your question. I do think it is this kind of fear of style, like of mm-hmm. this kind of suspicion of style as being less serious in some way.
1: Totally. I mean, you brought up Cornell West, and there's kind of two directions I, I, I see here. But he gave a speech at, like, like, some... It wasn't like Arizona State University. It was like State University of Arizona, or like some kind of, you know... Not ASU uh, public school, and there was a, a reporter. I think it, I think it was like a, a maybe a student reporter or a local uh, journalist who covered it in sufficient detail that they provided some pool quotes from the uh, from the speech. But I haven't been able to find the transcript or or a video or anything of it. But he has this 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 phrase that they quote verbatim, where he says, "Education is what stirs the soul." And that, that line, that phrase, might be, might capture for me, uh, you know, whatever, philosopher of education, blah, blah, blah. Like, like that may be the most economical expression I can point to um, anywhere that expresses some actually descriptive account of education that I'm comfortable with kind of playing ball with there, right? And it's coming off of a, essentially a, a, a pulpit on a... <laughs> At an academic, you know, uh, 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 talk, but very much popular, covered in the media, not recorded. It's not in a book he wrote or anything like that, you know. But education is what stirs the soul, you know. I mean, just, it, I feel like it has everything inside of it. Um, I, w- I wonder if we can think about though, things like these phrases um, between that kind of poetic and prosaic line. Um, w- would you mind being as? technically uh, uh, provoked as to talk a little bit about just like line breaks and sentence length and clause length, because I think these are, these this is the nitty gritty, right? And I never get to talk to anyone about it because no one wants to talk to me about style. So here we are.
0: Sure. I mean, it's really about, I mean, you're a musician, so it's really about what the music of the writing in this again is, if you have five minutes, there's a video on. Uh, you can Google Ta-Nehisi Codes the Atlantic, and um, he does a like five-minute video about style in prose writing. And one of the things he talks about is the the mu- matching the music of the verse to what it sounds like in your head. And that is what the process of writing really is. Is in my head, I'm hearing these things, and on the page, I'm seeing these things. This octopus that's growing and growing and growing and going in and, and so sentence variety is part of that so much in the way that percussion works in music so a long sentence is to stretch out an idea, short sentences to make a point or to like have a short an impact, a series of shorter sentences will also continue to draw readers attention to something um, so Deliberate. mm, There's, uh, there was a a kind of vogue a few years ago for like sentence fragments. You know, so I am telling you that this is my point, and it drove me nuts because I get that that's trying to mirror language, you know, spoken language. But there's a way to do that without. um, I think it's good to bend the rules of grammar, but not. break them necessarily. Although then that gets into these issues like Gloria Anzaldúa talks about of like, you know, whose English is it and sure. who does who does it belong to. But aside from putting aside the cultural side of this conversation which, you know, is a really important one. That's
1: the other road I was thinking of.
0: Yeah, the other <laughs> issue is just like thinking about your work as being um, if you think of your work as frozen on a page, then you won't ever really enjoy writing because writing is the living thing and if the manipulation and of language is part of making it sound good to the reader. So I really recommend to my students all the time to read their work out loud and mm-hmm. how much they actually do it, I don't know. Sure. But a, a painful but helpful exercise for us is to record yourself reading your work and then play it back as you're revising. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> because. That sounds really
1: brutal. Because I know, like, in the studio, that's the most painful thing ever is to, you know, play back in the monitor room, right?
0: Well, I mean, trust me, this is why I'm grateful I've never done an audiobook. I know authors who go on podcasts and say, I never listen to it. I always listen to <laughs> it because I want to know if I said something incredibly just like so just bad (laughs) but like really like just embarrassing but on the other hand um listening to your writing is an opportunity to pay attention to things like line breaks paragraph breaks building suspension building pacing into your work Mm -hmm. um paying attention to the arc of your work you know is there a climax in the essay that you're building up to Is there a denouement where you're kind of winding things down? Are you actually paying attention to the writing as a piece of art rather Mm -hmm. than just um, a bunch of ideas that are strung together with transitions?
1: Yeah, no, I, um, oh, it's, um, it almost feels, there's there's something transgressive about getting to talk about this. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, I mean, so so one thing I found, though, is that, like, so w- one good thing is, so my dad's an evangelist, a lot of preaching, a lot of homiletics, uh, I kind of, I know what I like. Um, uh, as a debater, um, I always enjoyed getting paired. Uh, I remember I had a finals in Sonora with, like, uh, uh, a, a member of the Black Church. And, you know, and and I always saw that as, like, you know, I, I, I love the challenge of, uh, because you know, my my dad's <laughs> a Mexican American uh, evangelist. He's he's not a, a Black Pentecostal preacher, um, but I think there's a style and, and a cultural uh, thing there that uh, that I'm willing to, to to pair up. And in a competitive environment, I'm 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 happy to you know to pose those. But one of the the heartbreaking things is that when I went to, to college. Um, I used the rhetorical and the and the, orat- and the kind of oratory presentation of writing well enough that I could fool um, a lot of people, including my teachers and academics. But whenever I hit the kind of stages where I really needed to know how to write, I found that that the ear, in fact, failed me and that I needed to learn to get to the eye. And I've read a lot of uh, accounts of poetry of like poetry's too much on the page, it's too stuck on the eye. But for someone who was all by ear, and I play by ear too, I actually needed to get onto the grammatical and the visual. And, and that's why for me, the line break, while the musical analogy to phrasing and stuff makes a lot of sense, George Benson, whistle while you play, like all that. For For me, I've actually had to almost detach my reliance on my ear um which is good enough, right? And it can emote. It can do a lot of stuff. It's great for Twitter or whatever. But like if we if we want to like raise the bar, I found that I've actually had to like get down to my eyes and to the structure and grammar, you know, on the page.
0: Yeah, I'm expecting copy edits for the book that so we finished developmental edits which are for those listeners who are not familiar with the process of book publishing which, you know, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's terribly difficult. Um, is that first you write a book and then you wait around for a while and then you get back what are called developmental edits, which is idea, you know, changing the ideas, changing the order of chapters, really digging into that the thinking of the book, and then it goes to a copy editor who's somebody who goes minutely through you know each sentence looking for grammatical. Issues looking for style issues, looking for it's oftentimes fact-checking things yeah. or looking at sources, and in some ways the um, the developmental edits are a lot easier to handle than the copy edits because your copy edits take a lot out of your ego um, <laughs> because you're like I can't believe I made that mistake, yeah. right? Like I know that to independent clauses can only be joined by a semicolon. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the only reason to use the semicolon. But, like, here, look, I did it here. Or, you know, I know this stuff. But the thing is, I, too, tested out of those comp classes. And I was thrown into, in my case, um, I started college as a classics major, and I had these very brilliant... um, elderly Christian brothers I went to a Christian Brothers college who knew every you know were drilled in grammar by nuns probably Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and they just they just let me have it, you know, yeah. just like and it was pretty brutal, honestly, but it did awaken me to the fact that I thought I was a good writer. I was good enough to fudge the SATs sure. and stuff like that. But yeah. But I think that's where copy editing and what you're talking about, getting feedback from somebody like where you really see your soul in it of like yeah. oh my god, I really do every time have, you know, that same thing that I do 500 times in this manuscript, so, yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, in, like, research uh, advising, and I know you teach research writing, too, um, in an oblique way, we've kind of been talking about it sort of critically, I guess, but, you know, I always go back to the whole, that old strunken white, write with nouns and verbs, you know, subject, and I I try to gently open it up to subject predicate uh, (laughs) sensibility, um right but I, I actually think that in many cases um there's an over there's a sensibility that sort of the descriptive function of adjectives and adverbs and all of these kind of additional pieces will kind of decorate or add all this there'll be super value added to a sentence or to an expression and more and more and more i realize that i'm rely i'm relying on those things when i don't have anything structurally inside the sentence to begin with, where I don't have a clear subject and I don't have a, a, a really action, uh, clear action predicate, you know, um, in many cases.
0: Right. I think that as you get more experienced in doing different kinds of writing, you learn to toggle um, back and forth between macro and micro a lot more, and rather than spending all your time thinking about I can't get the sentence to work. It's like, oh, it's actually the paragraph. Oh, it's actually the the whole essay. And I'm stuck on this one thing because my idea isn't there yet and I need Mm -hmm. to go back. And so often that detail, that mining of really specific details is where we realize that our larger ideas are... I don't want to say trash, but, yeah, like, sometimes it's like, well, this actually, I didn't think this through.
1: No, And yeah. Yeah,
0: so that is a very self-revealing problem, again, and that's where working with good editors, I mean, is such a lifesaver because they can help you when you've done that, and I've turned in many a piece where it came back from edits, and I'm like, oh, my God, like, I actually didn't (laughs) know what I was you yeah. know, Kaya, this is really well-written, but what the hell are you trying to say? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so.
1: yeah. Well, I think that's, again, where sometimes an over, there can actually, in fact, be an over-reliance on the sort of aesthetical presentation, and then you do get a kind of content review. Um, all of these things, I find, is kind of over- and under-determinations in every direction. Um, there was um, uh, a, a part there about—so um, uh, there's something I say to students, and it's going to sound super mean— um, and maybe it is kind of mean, but I, ideas can, can be trash, but I actually think sometimes we think they're ideas where we don't have them. So I've had the, the, the student in some cases say, I have this, this great idea in my head and I, and I, and it's there, but it just won't come out on the other end onto my word processor. And my general, uh, my general pushback is to say, well, if it won't come out, then it's not actually there. <laughs> like, 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 maybe you, do, maybe you're, you're, you're overconfident in this idea, and the fact that it won't actually make its way to the other side means that it just doesn't exist. Like, it's literally just not, not real, um, and that's, that's kind of tough. But in a way, it's different than saying it's trash, right? It's to say I think sometimes we think we have ideas when we really just have kind of like thoughts. Like, and maybe here there's a distinction to be made between a thought and an idea in sense of writing. Um,
0: Right. I got a really good lesson on this from the journalist Jeff Charlotte, who I've known for a few years through Killing the Buddha, which is a web magazine he started with Peter Manso, who's also a wonderful writer. And um, I was really, really struggling with this, with an idea for an essay, and I was pitching it around. and, And I finally, like Jeff... I think we we're on Twitter or something and he said, you know, let me let me DM you. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. uh oh, I'm in trouble now. And and you know, and uh, and he said, I think this I can't remember what, what it was, but he said, I think it goes back to Vivian Gornick talks about do you, the situation and the story. Do you have a situation or do you have a story? Mm. So knowing what I tend to write about it was probably some religion and politics thing and like i had a situation but i had no protagonist i hadn't found someone i want to follow this person's story or i want to tell the story of this community this neighborhood this church this school and it has to have a beginning middle and end or not you know something like that there has to be an arc and that actually really helped me. just that little bit of advice yeah. from Jeff really helped me a lot with.
1: So is the thinking that, here that if yeah. you only have a situation, it's sort of premature. It needs to become a story. Is that is that the the, right. the
0: advice? Right. Okay. That you need to do more. In, in my case, it would be reporting and research. In your case, it might be just research. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, it's more thinking. And with our students, a lot of the time it's pre-writing. Sure. That they jump into writing a draft before they've done an outline yeah. or... Uh, before they've done their research (laughs) like the students trying to write research essays doing the research while they're writing and I'm like nah it doesn't really work so it's I scaffold my classes so that they have lots of steps involved which doesn't work as well with Zoom but uh, but it does I try to think about that now a lot more when I pitch or when somebody asks me for a pitch Mm -hmm. and says "I, I often will get asked to write pieces from editors who say we're looking for a piece about blankety blank, yeah, yeah, yeah. like how would you approach this? And in that case, I have to come up with more of an angle rather sure. than a pitch.
1: Sure. Could you say a bit more about pre-writing because um, there's this there's this document. Um, so for the doctoral dissertation, um, there's a ton of steps that that it, that that involve getting up to the point at which you actually start dissertating. Um, which, by the time you get there, I, I, t- I take a very mystical approach. It's like At that point, it's sort of like magic and anything else you can find. Like it's sort of I just abandon all ability to explain. But there's a, a, a document that, that a lot of my students have been uh, creating that now I'm asking for, which they're calling a pre-proposal. Where they really just write maybe two, three pages worth of here's what I'm thinking, here's what I kind of want to do, here's what I've been reading maybe. Um, it's, it's sometimes they have this like archetypal story that sort of captures this concern they have and, and, and thematizes it. Anyhow, th- these kind of things are, are usually talking documents for the committee to sit around and, and figure out. But I'd love to hear more about the, the stage of pre-writing because I think it's a it's a stage that is not, at least within research, talked about
0: sufficiently what you have to write in order to write right so there's two forks to this road one is you know with academic writing so with undergraduates I might do something like so we're going to spring break next week and on their spring break they have to come back with a one sentence idea of what they're going to do their research project Mm -hmm. on then they do one paragraph then they do one page and then they do one page plus an outline and then they do, you know, a, a, their first bibliography and then their first draft. So, like, that's a really scaffolded approach to this with research writing. With journalism and with writing for a broader public, this often takes place in the pitching right. phase. When you say to an editor, I want to write an essay about, you know, the, the siege of the Capitol and what this tells us about whatever and the editor goes well we've already got somebody writing about that Mm -hmm. so but I like this part of your idea so Mm -hmm. could you say more about that and so it's that same so it requires a degree of reciprocity pre-writing needs to be reciprocal as well and so that's why I think writers should have um it's very important for us to have a writing group or something. Even when you're a professional writer, to have editors who you really trust. <laughs> if you're working with an editor for the first time, you have to build up that conversation. And like, yeah. how are you going to help me with the p- before I start to write? So when I'm doing stuff for, um, um, for like Commonweal, for example, the uh, Matt Sipman, You know, he's somebody who in the pitching stage will really work with you to kind of figure out what the whole essay is going to do versus just like here's a little nugget go back come back in four weeks with something because i think that's important to do and i do that with carrie weber at america too we often go back and forth on pitches Uh like who's the audience you know what are you trying to say here what's the idea yeah um and that's pre-writing you know is sort of like yeah, it's like stretching before you exercise.
1: Sure, you know? I love that. Which
0: I I never do. <laughs> so yeah, that's my no, back hurts. Really, yeah,
1: well, that's why I've given up on exercise. I just walk now. <laughs> yeah, I walk are. in my forest, like I was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. My, my I'm embarrassed to say this actually, in my much more limited uh, output and kind of popular writings, um, because you know, over time, and I suspect that we might agree about this because uh, i started off doing taking a very indie approach which i still feel is g- great for music but i've learned that that is not uh, uh an environment for for good writing so the blog the the kind of self-published blog even self-published books i self-published you know a, a early stuff you know and and uh some of it even got I, I would put it i would place ads into things and i was i was into the indie thing you know because that was sort mm-hmm. of the uh that was the environment that was uh um in many ways, that was my dad's approach to ministry and all that kind of stuff, you know, cassette tapes that you recorded on your own little lapel mic and then develop and brought the next prayer meeting, brought the tape and all that thing. So having said all that though, my most successful pitches, uh, and feel free to let me have it, uh, have actually been editors telling me, Sam, we believe you would write this thing really well. Uh, and it, could in some cases be based on like you tweeted this like kind of wild sounding enigmatic phrase but we think you can cash it out we think you have the the money in the account to cash it out do that or in other cases like when i wrote the case for biden it was the editorial board being like we kind of think you might be one of the only people who might be crazy enough to try to thread this needle because we need it threaded just in this exact way right um and so you know Knock yourself out. And I find that one of the things I love about that approach to the to the pitch is that I'm not really at a stage yet where I actually know what I'm what I do best. I am much I'm much better off being told you can do this, why, who knows? And being told, Oh yeah, of course I can do that. So I'll go do it. And and then of course after that there's a lot of back and forth and you know, in some cases I've been told afterwards, like, well we thought you could do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, been there. I think it's interesting, it's about in a lot of ways it's about um editors being there to give help us give ourselves permission mm. and how interesting that we don't blogs are a way the problem with blogs and I, I wanna um I wanna caveat this statement <laughs> because it's still a sensitive topic, right? Um to a lot of people are blogs you know a legitimate form of writing are they healthy are social media healthy for writing sure um, sure sure is it healthy to just be writing you know rods drear, style you know five yeah. blog posts a day yeah. is that good for your writing and in his case i would say no because he's not evolving as a writer what he's doing is dumping ideas, and I'm not saying this to dump on him. Although I'm happy By to do that means, too. By all means, please dump. But, on Rod <laughs> but that he's what he's doing is he's he's um, giving his audience something to talk about, right. and that's what we do on Twitter. We give yeah. people something to talk about. You know, you get to trade the mic of outrage. And blogs are, are really just... The writing in them tends to be pretty, pretty bad yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. And there's a lot of it. And they sort of peaked. And then they sort of have tapered off. So they were good for people. I had a live journal. You know, I wrote sure. on that thing sure. in my 20s. Like, I'm feeling this way today. Mm-hmm. And, and I worked out a lot of my angst. But... um I think it's more about this paying attention to giving ourselves permission to to write about things. So you're talking mm-hmm. about somebody reads a tweet and says, I think you're the right person to do this and puts the trust in you mm-hmm. that you can build something on it. But they've probably been following your other work. Of course. And yeah. so, right. So like it is that you build up you know, a portfolio that showcases what you can do, but you do have to give yourself permission to kind of say, I think I'm the one to write about this. And so I'm going to pitch this idea or I'm going to even write this tweet knowing that, you know, 10,000 people are going to write it, read it. And, you know, 9,900 of them are going to say, idiot. And (laughs) and then five will actually engage with it. But that's the risk of putting your work out there. You have to first give yourself permission. Then you have to be willing to take what comes back. So with my students, again, a lot of it has to do with writing, them being very resistant to writing, them hating it, having had bad experiences in high school. We're a STEM school, so I don't get, um, you know, we're very, almost all my students are STEM. Mm. And it's an opportunity for me to say, this is another way to understand the world and to, um, to like unlock things that you're interested in. But the difference with writing, versus um, doing a lab report is that someone's going to read it and you know your lab report someone's just going to check it yeah so i think uh, like it's if they understand that they have agency and that they give themselves permission to see themselves as writers and you're talking about academics giving themselves permission to see themselves as people who have ideas that are interesting enough for the non-academics to read or women giving ourselves permission to be in fields that are you know usually dominated by men Mm -hmm. or writers of color talking about you know entering um publications that they are not represented in and stuff like we have to sort of like allow ourselves to do that
1: so this might be a good segue to talk a little bit about the book that's coming out in november um i have I have some uh, a, another somewhat technical uh, nerdy uh, thing to bring up with it, but feel free to talk about it at any length or in any way you like. Um, so the title, because I think I think that the the genre of the title um, yes. is is super difficult to to deal with and and work around. And I have nine different views on any given day about it. Um, and then, of course, I have all my titles, which I know we have. We have the good titles that we know this was a good title, and we also know the ones that were bad. <laughs> um, so, your title is The Defiant Middle, and then the subtitle is How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. I wonder if, if we could talk a bit about, um, as you've noted, uh, and that was the second road that I think it might be good to, to walk on a little bit. Uh, questions of, of, of culture, of gender, of race, all these things. Um, but also, if you don't mind just talking a little bit about the title, I, one thing people may not realize is that, of course, um, titles are usually uh, not only uh, literary, they're oftentimes political in the sense that they're negotiations between not only editors and writers and that intimate trusting bond, but even larger uh, uh, interest groups with the imprint or the press or what have you. So I wonder if we could talk about both the politics and the literary sense of the title and your title right. specifically. So,
0: yeah. So this is not the original title that the book sold under a different title. And this is the title that a committee arrived at. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. It no. was like my editor, along with publicity people, marketing people, have to get together and think about what are keywords that will explain the idea to people and then so my last book was about non religious people and it had I had come up with this kind of cute joke kind of like the nuns are all right uh-huh. and and the problem is that, you know, if you're not familiar with the who and like that song, you're not gonna get it. And so, um so the publisher added this really wordy subtitle, okay. uh, a new generation of seekers, believers and those in between. And so that's kind of like, I tell my students, this is like the keyword search. Yeah. So like the title is the kind of brand of the book, and mm-hmm. then the, the subtitle with nonfiction books is what the keywords people are searching on the internet. And so my book was originally called Medieval because it's about liminal and in-between eras. And I was very drawn to Mm -hmm. medieval mystics as people who represent thinkers who were sort of like trapped in between. And especially women medieval mystics were trapped in between the expectations of what women should do think and feel and the era that they lived in and how does that manifest today yeah. um, but they were concerned that if i published a book called medieval everybody would think it was about the medieval era Which sure. yeah so the defiant middle came out of a lot of conversations about again you know what is this book about who's it for who's who do we want to read it etc. So yeah, it's again that awareness of audience
1: is sure. really important. Who are so, who are some of the um, the the medieval mystics? I'm I'm like so in my head I was like, "Oh, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. This sounds like sure. like is she, it, 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 does she make the cut or who makes the who makes the cut on that?"
0: <laughs> I wish I do really love her, but uh, uh, to be honest about it, the person who ended up playing a sort of outsized role in this book and in my COVID life, because I wrote the book over last year, so it's very much my pandemic book in some ways Um, but uh, is uh, the person who ended up kind of taking over my thinking about how the world works is Julian of Norwich Okay. Oh, yeah. And she became very important to uh, me, as just personally, um, because I needed a pandemic saint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: oh, that's great. Well, I'm excited to uh, t- to read it. I think that um, the, the even the idea of the like the middle and the middle position and this idea of like liminality and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's in some ways perhaps been overworked in in certain conversations, but it's clearly been underworked within, I think, religious uh, conversations, because so much of religious dialogue is actually about centers and about uh, sides, right? Um, But it's not really... It hasn't historically, I think, been very good about margins and middles and liminality and some of that stuff, you know, it's. uh...
0: Right. Yeah, it came very, uh, I would say that given the fact that it was written during COVID and that, you know, it was not a good year for any of us, that it actually was a good book to be working on because we are also trapped in between, you know, this nebulous future when we're all going to go back to quote unquote, Go back to things and the past and how it used to be, and uh, spiritually, that's been a real struggle for a lot of people. And so, it was a good book to be working on during COVID. So, yeah.
1: Oh, that's so great. Um, one kind of leftover that I, that I also wonder to the extent to which it may come in here or it may take us on a on a new path was is um, I mean. The context here, at, at a kind of very obvious cultural way, is that we're talking about English uh, primarily, and you mentioned Ansel Dues, who's English and stuff. Um, I've thought a lot about, I think, in the in the backdrop of Black Lives Matter and and just the the need I feel, especially, to overtly and distinctly uh, see the, the the beauty of blackness operating within. Uh, in particular, English letters, is you know I, I was noticing from the very beginning of this interview when it started, you know Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates, and then we went to Cornell West. And you mentioned, um, I've I've begun to to form the view that actually there is a kind of uh, there is a, a an almost non-negotiable. Blackness to the English language that the writer must be able to contend with regardless of their own personal identity or identification or how they present themselves. Uh, wh- how would you take to that claim here? I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's complicated as a white woman who grew up in Oakland, California, which was a majority black city in my childhood, and his, my mother was a teacher in the Oakland Public Schools, and my family. You know, I is interracial in that we are white, but there are black people in my family mm-hmm. through marriage. And, and so it is an interesting challenge to think about. And we, again, to talk with my students about this a lot too is that that line between cultural appropriation and a uh, cultural appreciation. Mm-hmm. So, like, my husband is white and he plays Cuban music. And mm-hmm. so, at what point? You know, can he learn Spanish or participate in Santeria ceremonies or travel there? He Mm -hmm. will still be a white guy from Berkeley, no matter what. And I'll always be, um, you know, my whiteness is always going to be a filter between me and what I'm reading. Mm. And I think that the thing to remember is that black writing and black speech is American speech so it's it is very much um, and in the future as we become California you're looking like the future of America you know and Mm -hmm. Richard Rodriguez talks Mm -hmm. about this too that we become brown Mm -hmm. and that the fact that our country will also linguistically become like it's black speech but also like here in California Chicanx like Latinx speech Asian American speech all of these kinds of speaking and what Ansel Du is talking about is like that wild tongue right that is the improper English It's so it can be very beautiful and very moving to hear people honoring that in their writing but then you have this problem of like again like the correcting of people's language and people's English the idea of proper English and, sure. and so that I find as a teacher very it's difficult because I want my students to write in a discourse of the academy so that they can succeed at Berkeley mm-hmm. but I want them to keep their voice and their culture mm-hmm. in their writing and so I think um, we talk a lot about this discourse and discourse communities and so on and so forth and coming from here you know I grew up with black language as kind of like what I heard more than you know white speech, so sure. to speak, um in my teachers and my classmates and my friends, in my churches, yeah, and um, and so it's very familiar to me, but it's not mine, and I mm-hmm. wouldn't I try so hard to resist the urge to, you know, have a black scent or, like, mm-hmm. to pick up that, the hood vocabulary. Sure, um, sure. It's, I don't, you know, it's not mine. Right. Uh, but right. I, I hear it and I recognize it. And I think that is that we're going to have to learn, and I, by we, I mean white people. So sure. So sure. white people are going to have to learn to um, to listen first and correct second. Mm. In other words, we have to become more familiar with the way that other people's Englishes work and understand it. So a Chinese student has a completely different way of understanding language than I do. Sure. That they don't have verbs, you know, that the metaphor, they use metaphors for everything. Sure. And um, and I have to understand what, I have to hear them say, this is how I'm understanding this, how I'm reading this, before I can say, here's how you can change it. Right. Or here's some things you could try. Right. So I don't know if that makes sense, Sam, but I think... Um, as we're coming to recognize black writing as so central uh, to American writing, yeah, um, that we will increasingly also recognize writing by people from other kinds of communities and other cultures as just part of this American and Canadian, <laughs> North well, there's American. there's the Canadiana Americana
1: yeah. thing, which is its own sensitive right. line, borderline. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, I think I mean to me this is compelling because um, when I when we read Du Bois, um, and I have these almost obnoxiously uh, pluralistic uh, qu- classes where I have students from Turkey and from Iran and from China and from South America and from you know we're, we're you know we're we're the intercultural. <laughs> Society that Canada is kind of known for, and there is a universality to Du Bois's prose. I mean, just his flat chops that cuts to the core of anyone who's literate in the English language and shows them a kind of a, a, a poetic and a literary and an aesthetic standard that um, oftentimes scares them, and not not in a I, I'm not saying scaring like scary in a political sense or a punitive sense I mean it's so high the bar is set so high for them Um, and I like to say well this is where the bar is for the English American English language Uh, this is the tradition for me that sets that bar and you can read contemporary writers in this tradition like Coates and and others who are continuing that you know approach and I just feel like um obviously there's a lot of great writers out there um (laughs) <laughs> but um, but within that tradition, I think all of us uh, have to contend with uh, the, the the presence of this of this persistent quality of black prose and blackness within the American language. That's just so um, sure. inspiring. And also, I'll, I'll admit it, I'm with them too. Sometimes, pretty intimidating. Sometimes to keep up with, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but great. Well, any last words uh, uh, you have for us for today?
0: I don't but other than the fact that I have words and they're last. So <laughs> I mean to summarize our conversation, I think I think it's really important for all of us to think about when when it comes to writing and conversations of what we're saying, why we're saying it, who we're saying it to, and what we expect from them and how are we prepared when they don't respond, how we think they're going to Like sort of thinking a little bit more about who we are as people, deconstructing your ideas about your your religion, your race, your gender, your social class, um, on a regular basis can make you a better writer because you're more able to hear voices that are different from your own.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Kaya Oaks. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Wippenstock Publishers, Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, the Juan Diego Network, and our featured sponsor for today, Commonweal Magazine. Commonweal Magazine is offering, as I said at the beginning, a whole year subscription to Commonweal for just $9.95. You can find the link in the show notes. If you're a student or a recent graduate, you can also sign up for a subscription to Commonweal entirely for free. I'd also like to mention that Commonweal has a podcast which is among the friends of the show, and I just want to thank them for their sponsorship and their support for Folk Phenomenology. The Friends of the Show are The Commonweal Podcast, as I said, and also The Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Kush Classics. All of these Friends of the Show, like The Commonweal Podcast, are people that I know who are producing media that I think is important and that I believe in and that I listen to. And in many cases that I have been a guest on. And so I just want to give a a warm salute to all of those wonderful friends, along with a very warm thanks to all of the sponsors. Make sure to check out the show notes for links, not only to Commonweal, but also to everyone else. And you'll also find there Uh, tip jar, which if you do contribute, those contributions will be saved to kickstart what I hope to be season two of Folk Phenomenology. For now, the most important thing though is to please, please, please share this episode and subscribe to the show. Every like, every retweet, every share helps. And I would encourage you in particular to say uh, in some detail maybe what you liked about a show or what stood out to you, or something like that, to give people who might be skeptics a chance to maybe uh, find a place to dig in. Next week, I'm in conversation with Sarah Hogarth Rossiter, a philosopher and also a friend of mine here local in Vancouver. Because of COVID, we still had to interview uh, over Zoom, but our conversation is wide-ranging. I've titled it Philosophy and Math, but in truth, it goes into everything from medieval logic and some of the assumptions of modern logic to the pedagogy and teaching of mathematics and some of the assumptions made about things like intelligence. Also some autobiographical details uh, from Sarah regarding math and a few other things. In the end, though, she shares a really moving insight about a sense that she has of every person being in some sense a prophet and she shares this as a way to make sense of her work and her vocation as a teacher and I think that that sense of being a teacher that she shares is really the thing that I took from the conversation as wide-ranging as it was in Plato's Mino there's this idea that all learning and inquiry is but recollection. The word for recollection in Greek is anamnesis. And one of the implications of this idea is essentially that everyone who has a soul, every person, can learn. Everyone can be educated, and I believe this radical yet very ancient philosophical idea of the quality of intelligence that undergirds, I believe, a fierce commitment to a particular kind of education and to a particular kind of teacher. In this interview, Sarah presents herself as just one such kind of teacher, a kind of teacher who believes in this principle, a teacher who loves the world, de lexi mundum.
0: What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't know if it's a word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out This is what compels me to compel them and I will do it by whatever means, necessary. Love is where you
1: find it, It's where you find it, It's hmm? where you find it, it's hmm? where you find it And hmm? you, find it. Hmm? Where you find it. Hey, don't know where it will count you know where yeah. And it is a terrifying thing, Love. Well, it's the only human possibility but it's terrifying and Through the eyes of our ears We see the beauty of hope, we see the beauty
0: of pain, we see the beauty.